You're listening to Special Education Matters, a regular podcast about things that matter in special education. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I am the proud father of an 18-year-old boy with autism. When you're entering the world of assessments and therapies, often the FBA or Functional Behavioral Assessment is dropped into the conversation as a starting point to understanding how to best help your child. Today, I speak with Kirsty Gillespie, a behavioral therapist or BCBA, and we get down to the nitty-gritty of what an FBA is, how it is conducted, and how the assessment guides therapies going forward. Kirsty Gillespie, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have you here in these troubled times. We were talking all about COVID a little bit before the show, and the, some of the exciting changes, you know, maybe exciting is the right way or the wrong way to phrase it, that we've all been going through in this time. And uh, But I thought we could write to the, sort of the heart of all this, and we're going to talk today about functional behavioral assessments and what it's like as a BCBA and all those things. Can you give us just a short uh, background on what is a FBA? Yes, uh, an FBA is a functional behavior assessment. So it's a comprehensive look at maladaptive behaviors, um, skill deficits, and then also the uh, intensity, the frequency, and also the social significance of uh, a student's profile. Um, so it includes, you know, a lot of background information. Um, we review prior records, prior uh, previous interventions, IEPs, um, any psychological evaluations they've had. Um, we conduct assessments that might include something like a Vineland assessment or a VB map or an ABAS. Um, and then we draft a an assessment report or a treatment plan of all of the clients' maladaptive behaviors um, in observable, measurable terms, as well as our hypothesized function of those behaviors, and then our intervention plan for how we're going to address them and teach uh, new replacement skills or behaviors. Okay, so I don't know, would an FBA be scary to a parent? Like, when would a parent first hear, oh, this child needs an FBA? Like, if they were new to all that, they might think, oh, my gosh, is this going to involve needles or something, which, you know, you just <laughs> described it, so obviously it doesn't. But, right. like, when would I encounter that as a parent, even that somebody bringing that up? I've done behavior assessments for families that are in all different um, walks of their ABA life. Um, some, a lot of them are when you are first getting a diagnosis. So I work with a lot of parents that are, you know, scared and they've just gotten this big, scary diagnosis and this big list of referrals and treatments and things they need to get accomplished. Um, so I, I do work with a lot of parents like that. And I, I do try to explain to them that this is a, you know, a very extensive assessment that covers, mm -hmm. you know, their entire life and the kid's entire life includes their family too. So I feel like it is a pretty intrusive assessment. Um, I try to do my best to walk parents through all the steps so that they're aware kind of of what's going to happen next. Um, and then I also try to alert them to the fact that once we're done with this assessment, that I will be providing a recommendation for services. Um, a lot of families that haven't received ABA before aren't aware that that it is a very intensive therapy. Um, you know, sure. some some clients might start with upwards of 30 hours a week of service. That's pretty much your kid has a full time job now, and um, you know that means there's going to be people in your home or you're going to be at our clinic every single day. So it's you know it is a very intensive therapy, and um, the the SBA is just the first part of it. Um, for some other 
clients. It might be an older client that has had a large break in services. So sometimes I do assessments for clients that have had ABA prior, but then they've taken maybe a a 10-year break and now they're seeing regression. So they're looking to restart services. So I've also done some that are that are more driven that way. I've done assessments on adults that have never had ABA and then mm-hmm. they end up getting a referral for one. So it, you know, it really can be a few different things. You know, when I think about FBAs, I'm always thinking about younger kids, but you mentioned adults now. So is it not uncommon for somebody who's you know, 20 or 30 to have an FBA and receive ABA services today? Well, so now that um, ABA has made this very... Um, interesting transition as far as just medical insurance and funding goes in the past couple of years. So we do have, you know, people used to think of autism as just, or ABA as just a treatment for autism, whereas really that's not true. There's a lot of other, um, you know, ailments or disabilities that can be treated by ABA as well as all the research is showing. So now we are getting these, these um, clients that are older that have never received ABA before because whatever their diagnosis is, it wouldn't be covered, but now maybe it would be. Ah, that's, that's different. It's nice to learn something new like that. Yeah. I have <laughs> just kind of a question about going back a little bit about regarding parents' emotions. I know when, you know, my son's 20 now, but when we were first facing all these assessments, it was sort of just this giant fog when we would talk to a BCBA like you or whoever's doing an assessment. How much of your energy do you find is devoted to managing a parent's emotions versus giving the information that they need to hear? I think that has been a learning curve for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know what? I think when you first become a BCBA, you just, if you're like me, you just jump in where you would just want to nerd out on all things brain and all things behavior. Um, but you really, it's really all about getting to know that family dynamic. So I have kind of changed the way that I, that I run these assessments in the sense that I kind of just go in and, and treat it more so like an interview with the parent. So I want to hear Mm -hmm. about what their struggles are, what their challenges Uh are. Um, you know, a, a lot of times, like you were saying, this is, it's been a whirlwind of they've gotten a diagnosis and they don't know what to do next. Um, the entire FBA process, I ask so many questions and I gather so much information that I'm sure it's just a, a big fog for them. Um, so what I try to do is keep them informed as the process is going along. So I'll let them know beforehand, okay, here's a breakdown of what we're doing today. Here's what it's going to accomplish. And then the next time we meet, okay, here's what we're going to accomplish during this meeting. Um, because, yeah, it is very extensive. See, I always wonder, as a professional, you're listening to people and you've been doing this a little while. Do you, as, as you gather data for people do, or uh, individuals, do you find that uh, you see sort of a certain pathway of, of the services that are going to benefit this or that child and it quickly becomes obvious to you? Or is it, you know, they say if you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. Is everybody incredibly uniquely different? Or is it, you know, there's probably like four or five categories of, of types of services that'll benefit this child or that child? I think that there is no one plan for everyone. So the services are definitely very individualized. Um, I, I personally work with a lot of clients that have more um, aggressive or destructive type behaviors. Huh. So, you know, I do see a lot of, a lot of those clients coming on, you know, coming into my clinic with 
you know, much more intensive, um, like oppositional type disorders or aggressive behaviors, self-injury, things like that. Um, but even so, they're also different. You know, uh, one, one child throwing a book through a window and another child throwing a book through a window are doing it for completely different reasons. Um, they're both doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it might look the same, but what's really happening, the, you know, the full picture is, is always so different. Um, I think that is something that's really challenging for BCBAs as they're drafting FBAs is you only get such a small picture. Um, you know, a lot of times Mm -hmm. an FBA is only given, we only get eight hours to complete the whole thing. Well, half of that time is direct and half of that time is indirect. So that means we get four hours to see this kid um, and learn everything about them before we draft sure, this, yeah. treatment, this treatment plan that will affect them for at least the next six months. Um, and I think that is something that is, is really challenging for the assessors as far as, you know, getting that, getting that full picture so quickly. And then on top of that, drafting a, you know, 30 or 40 page assessment in a matter of four hours. So that then begs the question or makes me wonder, well, first, if the person who does the FBA, do they typically provide the services or is there usually an FBA specialist doing those? Hmm. Um, well, I can't speak for all, for all companies. Um, mm-hmm. But for us, we typically will try to assign the assessment to the BCBA that oversees that region. So then that, they, that way they'll have their hand in that case once they uh, start. However, a, okay. a family can come to us for an assessment, but then they don't necessarily have to come to us for services. Um, majority of the time they will, of course, because they've found one agency, you meet someone, you, you know, you tell them all yeah, about you your, that trust. Yeah, yeah exactly. So a, a lot of times they will kind of stay, but every once in a while you, you will see it where the person who does the FBA is not the person that oversees the entire program. If that is the case, because um, I do a lot of the assessments at, um, at Creative Solutions, mm-hmm. the, I'll typically be discussing that assessment with the person that takes over the case, giving them a, you know, a brief overview of, of everything that I noticed or what my ideas of programming would be for the case. Um, just as kind of my offering for what I envision when I'm drafting the assessment. Okay. Well, that's what I was wondering. Like, so let's say you or somebody else has drafted the assessment and and you're working with the child and you're, let's say, I don't know, three, four weeks in, how often does it happen? You're like, this FBA was totally not what I, it isn't really giving me the right direction now that I actually know the child. I mean, does it take that much time to really know it or is the FBA pretty accurate most of the time? I mean, there's not a time where I've said, oh, this is completely bonkers but um there definitely are times where maybe i didn't see a behavior in that short observation window so you know i might not have seen any property destruction during my assessment however we start services and property destruction is because become a behavior of concern so i would say more so that's what happens Um, I purposefully will kind of draft a broad outline of what I want my intervention plan to look like or the, the targets that I feel would be effective as part of their treatment plan. Um, Mm -hmm. And then once I begin services, the first thing I do is I pick apart that entire intervention plan to make sure that it is now individualized for every nuance that might take place in that 
client's life. Okay. So it sounds like it's an on-ramp to, you know, a sort of a pathway or a road to services, and then you're going to take your detours along the way. Exactly. Now, we were talking before the show, you have a background in neuroscience, specifically working with stroke victims. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious about that. You know, when you work with uh, uh, kids, let's say, on the autism spectrum, and you look at uh, some of your past work in neuroscience, do you, do you see connections or similarities in how the brain operates, or is it completely different? Um, you know, I think my, my background helps me really connect with the older clients, um, the young adults that are receiving services that have, you know, more profound deficits. Um, just because coming from a history of working with stroke victims, um, you know, we talk about kind of um, reinforcement of behavior, right? The, the longer a maladaptive behavior has been reinforced, the longer it's going to take to extinguish that behavior or modify that behavior. So with the stroke patients I used to work with, um, they've maybe been living 60, 65 years of their life being able to do something for themselves. Sure. And yeah, now, yeah. now they're in a place where they need to ask for help. Their likelihood of asking for help is going to be pretty low because they have gone 65 plus years being able to do it without asking for help. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I do kind of try to take that into consideration when I'm working with my clients. Um, especially when I'm doing these assessments, because, you know, how long that behavior has been happening plays a big role in how we're going to modify it. You know, working with whether it's older or younger kids, mostly in this case now, it can be rewarding and then frustrating. Uh, what keeps mm-hmm. you going? Like, what's your why? Like, why do you do this work and why do you continue to, to work with the uh, kids who have these needs? Um, I mean, I love it. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that's the answer you're looking for, but I... It, well, I no, mean, it's a good answer. Like, yeah, what are some <laughs> of the things you like remind you of why you love it? Is it, do you see successes maybe? or I mean, there's got to be frustrations along the way too. I mean, honestly, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm the only one, but I, I love every single part of my job. I love the, uh, the nitty gritty reports. Even when they, thro- even when I they love throw a book out the window. I love getting thrown at me. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yes, I... <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a hundred percent in. So, I mean, I think that maybe the why or what keeps me going is when you do see those little, those little, um, you know, mm-hmm. flickers of hope or flickers of progress. Um, but as a person that never worked with kids before I got into this field, I would never go back. I absolutely, I absolutely have the best time with every single one of my clients. So you can imagine being in a different field and not having a book thrown at you for a couple months and you're like, yeah, this is just boring. You know, what's funny is, you know, my friends and family, they, they can't imagine if they went to work and had a book thrown at them, they would quit or call HR or something. (laughs) They would, that would not be a good day for them where I'm like, well, for me, it was a book, but it wasn't the computer. So, you know, (laughs) silver lining. Well, there's, it definitely makes for more interesting conversations when somebody says, hey, what do you do? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I have books thrown at me every day, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, Kirsty, we're coming towards the end of our time, and I, sometimes I like to ask a future-oriented question. And, you know, as you're involved in research and doing work and things like that, do you see, like, oh, wow, the field is just so young, there's lots of new things we can learn, and 10 years from now we're going to be so much more effective? Or do you feel like, eh, the research is pretty mature, we have some ways that uh, we work with kids, and these are the things that are best for them? Where do you see the future going for uh, your career and, and some of the research? I mean, I feel like we are always learning and always growing. So, uh, you know, I definitely think there's still many great things to come and many new um, new lessons we're going to learn and new ways to um, to teach our clients. Um, and, yeah, I definitely think that there's a lot more on the path ahead. I, uh, you know, look how far we've come in even 20 years in this field. Mm. Um from, you know, very DTT structured, uh, you know, structured session, ABC, to more play-based, to now you're seeing a lot more, uh, a lot of my programs mm-hmm. are kind of hybrid between that, where I'm, you know, I'm maybe teaching something in a more direct teaching manner, and then going and generalizing it, moving it to the community, moving it to the clinic, uh, something that CSH is uh, very passionate about is our teens and young adults and vocational skills. Um, we have a group of, of um, teens that have started their own business through our company. So, you know, I oh, think wow. that there's a, there's a lot more to offer um, our community, and I I just hope that it'll continue to grow over the next you know ten or twenty years. Kirsty Gillespie, thanks so much for all the work that you do for students like mine and uh, for the rest of the community. Yeah, it was lovely talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon.